Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, Joshua chapters 17 and 18. We got a short ways into uh, Joshua chapter 17 last week. And we'll start close to the beginning of it this week. But first I want to step back and look at some things from a broader view. Last week in chapters 15, 16, and 7, and a little bit of 17, we studied the all-important distribution of the promised land by Joshua to the tribes of Israel. Now, it's difficult (coughs) to overstate really the theological and prophetic significance of that event it's at least on par with the return of Israel as a nation of Hebrews to its original homeland in 1948 60 years ago a prophecy that was so long in the making that most Christians and Jews had long ago given up hope of it ever occurring and in lieu of believing the scriptures and waiting for the Lord to move to bring Israel home Christians devised what is called replacement theology whereby every biblical reference to the land and the people of Israel was allegorized into the church essentially transferring the covenant blessings to the Christians but leaving all the covenant curses for the Jews and Jews decided that God had permanently exiled them from the promised land with little to no hope for return. So theologically, this land distribution of Joshua was about God establishing his set-apart people in a designated set-apart place. It was about God's set-apart leader, Joshua, behaving as a godly leader should. He obeyed the Torah. He demanded that Israel also be obedient to the law and he led the people selflessly as a servant and not a tyrant or a prima donna. This also reflected God's character and God's ability to do whatever he promised to do, even if it seems humanly and rationally impossible. Now, I told you last week that there is an element of this land distribution that rarely, if ever, is taught and discussed. It is the element of responsibility and obligation of the inheritors to the divine giver. When Israel was looking ahead to that time that they would finally enter Canaan, and then each tribe and clan and family would receive a piece of land for its own, they were very anxious for it all to happen the way a child looks forward to his upcoming birthday party. What they didn't realize was that connected with that inheritance of the land was an obligation to finish conquering it. Up to now, the twelve tribes worked together as a large and formidable army to battle the Canaanites in order to take their land from them. The holy war against Canaan had been largely successful, but a lot remained to be done. Not all the territory was conquered. It was spotty. Think of 
modern-day Iraq, in which there is no doubt that in general the USA's conquered it, but are we in full control of that place? No. One city can be completely peaceful and a few miles away another can be in utter turmoil. Okay. One city can be loyal to the new Iraqi U.S. coalition government and another not far away is under the control of a warlord who opposes the government. Okay. That's how things were in Canaan in Joshua 17. Okay. At the time of Joshua 17 the army of Israel had more or less disbanded. And each tribe was now fielding its own militia. Each tribe was primarily concerned for itself. As we'll find in this uh, and the next chapter of Joshua, seven tribes had yet to receive their land inheritance. But it wasn't because it wasn't offered to them. It was because they had been refusing it. Why on earth would they do that? Because acceptance of their land inheritance meant that each tribe now assumed full responsibility to finish conquering it and to govern their allotted territory. Inheritance neither meant peace nor stability for Israel. It was but a step along the way and a very long process that suddenly added a new and very challenging obligation. This was the historical reality of it. But it was, was and it remains also the theological reality of it. Now, I've long preached against the modern complacent church that to its core believes deep down that once a person walks that aisle and accepts their redemption from Messiah that our work's done we can just pull up a pew and be interested observers that by inheriting salvation we now sit back and just enjoy the fruits waiting only for the day we arrive in heaven we pray then we go our merry ways nothing could be less scriptural than that proposition Instead, we're meant to equate our redemption in Jesus and our inheritance to that of Israel's over Canaan. That's one of the reasons that I think that the Lord chose to preserve this particular episode for us. Along with our salvation and inheritance comes duties and responsibilities. We have indeed come into a kind of spiritual rest due to our trust in God's Son. But physically, we still live in a hostile, unconquered place. God stated over and over to Joshua that he'd already accomplished victory over Israel's Canaanite enemies before the army even went to battle. Yet that did somehow not absolve Israel from participating in battle. God was not going to do a 100% supernatural Sodom and Gomorrah type of destruction upon Israel's enemies. Israel would have to fight for a long time to achieve victory and then to hold on to its gains. The path was going to be very uneven and dangerous. 
It's exactly the same for believers of this or any era. I've said to you recently that Armageddon is actually but the final battle for Canaan that started with Joshua. Okay, I didn't, didn't say that or mean it as illustration or allegory, but rather as simple biblical fact. Fittingly, the name of the leader of the battle of Armageddon, Yahshua, abbreviated to Yeshua, is the same as the leader for the battle of Canaan. Yahushua, we say Joshua. The battle, of course, takes place in the heartland of Canaan with Armageddon, just as it did with Joshua. Although I won't go into all the details right now, even observance of the all-important laws of Harem, the divine laws of holy war, that God enjoined upon Joshua and Israel are going to be scrupulously observed at the battle of Armageddon as all enemy combatants must be killed without exception because they're devoted to God as essentially spoils of war. But also consider the matter of the enemy. In Joshua's day, the enemy was the Canaanites who were being ordered exterminated because God judged them as being irreconcilably wicked in his eyes. Yet, who spiritually was prince over the wicked Canaanites? Satan. Therefore, at Armageddon, even though physically, Yahshua, Jesus, is going to be leading the holy war against the wicked people of the world from all of its nations, spiritually, he's actually fighting the evil one, the prince of all those nations, Satan. The enemy's the same. You see, just as Satan was the spiritual prince of Canaan, so now, as then, really, he's also the spiritual prince of the whole world. Now, listen to me, please, because what I'm about to say to you, in many ways, addresses the modern-day political arguments concerning Israel and the Middle East. Satan today has a legal right to this earth. God has legally turned it over to Satan for a time. God has the right to do this because he owns all things. The Lord, for his own good reasons, has turned the world over to Satan and pronounced him prince of the world. Satan is not a squatter. But he is in charge only for a while. He has limited power limited scope, and his evil intents are being used to achieve God's will. Yet in the midst of all this, the Lord has made a path of escape for those who want it. That path is called salvation. But recognize that this is a spiritual, not a physical path of escape with spiritual, not physical, repercussions at this point in history. 
Israel was redeemed, but they still had to deal with Satan. Same thing for us. Now, in line with that, we must never think of the many different Canaanite tribes and peoples that lived in Canaan in Joshua's day as illegal squatters who deserved to have their fields and homes and cities taken away from them. They had every legal right to that place until God decided it was time for them to be destroyed and then the inheritors of that land, Israel, to assume their rightful position. God had every right to destroy the Canaanites because they were evil in his sight and so he judged them to destruction for their sin. God has every right to destroy Satan because he's evil and the Lord will eventually cause his destruction for his sin. Canaan was a type and a shadow of Satan and the battle for Canaan is a type and shadow of the battle of Armageddon. In the book of Joshua, we are witnessing a type of battle of Armageddon that was not fully successful because God's people were disobedient and because they had an imperfect leader. So here's what we have to take from all this. First, Satan is currently the legal prince of the world and is ruling at God's will. Second, the day has already been appointed that the Lord will revoke Satan's position as prince and replace him with Yeshua. Third, God has determined that while non-Hebrews at one time had every legal right to be in the land of Canaan, now called Israel, they no longer have that right as he's turned the land over to his set-apart people. Fourth, as inheritors of God's kingdom, we indeed have heavenly rest, but we don't yet have physical, fleshly rest. Five, as inheritors of God's kingdom, we have earthly responsibilities and duties to fulfill. Our lives are going to be full of conflict against evil. We must stand against it. We have to take action against it. And we have to be willing to be in harm's way in the process. And sixth, compromise is not an option. Joshua and the Israelites who would come after him made peace with the enemy. They allowed the enemy to survive and prosper and continue on in their pagan ways. Eh, provided they didn't bother Israel too much. But that was not what the Lord had instructed Joshua and Israel to do. Christianity has for too long sought to compromise and make nice with the world. That approach weakened Israel and it ruined their harmony with Jehovah. And it has done exactly the same thing to the church. Let's reread Joshua chapter 17. Open your Bibles. Page 259, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. This was the territory chosen by Lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. 
As for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilad, because he was a warrior, he got Gilad and Bashan. So the lot was drawn for the other descendants of Manasseh, according to their families, for the descendants of Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shmidah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, according to their families. But Zolofchad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilad, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters. Machla, Noa, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the Kohen, the priest, Yehoshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, Adonai ordered Moshe to give us an inheritance together with our kinsmen. Therefore, in keeping with Adonai's order, he gave them an inheritance together with the kinsmen of their father. Thus, ten parts fell to Manasseh in addition to the land of Gilead and Bashan beyond the uh, Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh had an inheritance along with his descendants. But the land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the descendants of Manasseh. The, uh, the border of Manasseh began at Asher, and it went to uh, Mechmetat, which is across from Shechem. Next, the border went along to the right to the people of Ein Tepuah. The land of Tepuah belonged to Manasseh, but Tepuah on the border of Manasseh belonged to the descendants of Ephraim. The border descended to Vadi Kana, south of the Vadi, by the cities which belonged to Ephraim, among the cities of Manasseh. But the border with Manasseh was on the north side of the Vadi, and it ended at the sea. Southward, now, it was Ephraim's. Northward, it was Manasseh's. And the sea was to its border, while to the north, they extended to Asher, and on the east, to Issachar. Now, in Asher and Issachar, Manasseh had Beit Shan and its villages. Yiv Leom and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, of Eindor and the villages, of Tanakh and its villages, and of Megiddo and its villages, three districts in all. But the descendants of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. The Canaanites wanted to stay in that land. After the people of Israel had become strong, they made the Canaanites do heavy labor, but they didn't completely drive them out. Then the descendants of Joseph spoke to Joshua and they said, Why have you given me only one lot and only one portion to inherit? After all, I'm a great people, since Adonai has blessed me so. And Joshua answered them, Well, if you're a great people, go up to the forest and clear the land for yourself. They're in the territory of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hills of Ephraim don't give you enough space. And the descendants of Joseph replied, but the hills won't be enough for us. And all the Canaanites living in the valley have iron chariots. Both those in Beit Shan and its villages and those in the Jezreel Valley. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to both Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a great people with much power. You will not only have one lot, but the hills will be yours too. Although it's a forest, you will clear it. And the resulting open land will be yours. You will drive out the Canaanites even though they have iron chariots and are strong. Verse 1, we discussed at length last week, remembers that Manasseh and not Ephraim was Joseph's firstborn son. Now, what it expects us to know is that Joshua's, uh, rather, uh, Joseph's grandfather, Jacob, had pronounced a divine prophetic blessing upon Joseph's two Egyptian-born sons, 
that effectively took Manasseh's firstborn status away from him, turned it over to his younger brother Ephraim, and then simultaneously Jacob adopted these two grandchildren away from Joseph and made them his own sons. Now here it's necessary to have a very firm grasp on tribal structure. And first and foremost is that a tribe is composed of clans, several clans, each of which are essentially very large extended families. Now, Mahir was the firstborn son of Manasseh, and thus he represents the most prominent family line of Manasseh. Now, understand, we're not talking in these chapters about the actual person of Mahir because he was long ago dead and gone. Rather, Mahir is the name of the clan that he fathered. And of course, since the firstborn son of the tribe's founder fostered the clan, this particular clan is the most powerful of the clans that formed the tribe of Manasseh. And then here we're reminded the clan of Mahir, who's currently under the leadership of a fellow named Gilead, inherited the territory east of the Jordan, the land of Bashan, and a land that would be named after him called Gilead. Therefore, we're introduced to five other clans of Manasseh who were to receive land, but they were going to get their land on the west side, the west bank of the Jordan in the Promised Land. And these five were Aviatzer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, and Shemidah. But there's also a sixth name mentioned, Hefer. And it comes with an explanation. Hefer was indeed a clan of Manasseh. In fact, he was a clan that had been spawned by another clan, Mahir. In other words, of the sons and families that Mahir had created, Hefer was one of the line of one of the lines of descent that had grown very large and powerful. Powerful enough to now be considered a separate clan in its own right. Now that's not unusual. That's how the number of clans tended to grow within a tribe. The most current male leader of the Hefer clan was a fellow named Zolofchad, Hefer's son. But there was a problem. Zolofchad had no sons to inherit. He only had daughters. Therefore, he had no son to carry on the clan authority when Zolfchad died. Further, since it was apparently quite rare that a man would have no son to succeed him, one of the purposes of a man having concubines, by the way, was to be sure he had a son. It was not a straightforward process to leave his wealth and possessions to his female children. Therefore, we are reminded here that the daughters of Zolochad petitioned Moses when they were still out in the wilderness for Moses to declare that they, as women, would get a land inheritance inside the promised land. Otherwise, theoretically, the land inheritance that their father Zolochad would have been entitled to would have been forfeited. Now, contrary to some beliefs, there is a provision in the law for females to inherit. So, 
when Moses agreed to allow it, it was not an exception to the rule. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27. Page 183, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read the first eight verses. <clears throat> then the daughters of Zolochad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Mahir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, approached. These were the names of his daughters. Machlah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood in front of Moses, Eleazar the Cohen, the leaders... <clears throat> and the whole community at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the desert. He wasn't part of the group who assembled themselves to rebel against Adonai in Korah's group. But he died in his own sin and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be eliminated from his family just because he didn't have a son? Give us property to possess along with the brothers of our father. Moses brought their cause before Adonai. And Adonai answered Moses, The daughters of Zolochad are right in what they say. You must give them property to be inherited along with that of their father's brothers. Have what their father would have inherited passed to them. Moreover, say to the people of Israel, so now we're going to have a law. If a man dies and does not have a son, you are to, give this inher- uh, you are to have his inheritance pass to his daughter. So here we see the story of Zolofkad's daughter developed some years earlier. We see the Lord actually ordain a law whereby if a man doesn't have a son, he's obligated to give that inheritance to his daughters. Essentially, we find that that it was this particular incident that prompted the creation of the law of female inheritance as a standard in Hebrew society. Now, since there were five daughters that each were to get land, And there were five sons that had been named in the preceding verses that would also inherit it. Therefore, was the tribe of Manasseh's allotment divided into ten portions. As it says to begin verse 5, one each for the five females, one each for the five males. And again, we're told that this was in addition to the land that had been granted to another clan of Manasseh that was located on the east side of the Jordan. Well, beginning in verse 7, we get the boundaries and borders for the tribe of Manasseh. It was a pretty large territory. And it was contiguous. Here you see Manasseh. Here you see Ephraim. is contiguous to Ephraim's territory. Because in previous chapters, we found that the procedure was that when lots had been drawn up by Joshua to match up a a region to a tribe, and that was according to the population of a tribe, that only one lot had been drawn for the combined group of Manasseh and Ephraim. And this was because together they were considered the tribe of Joseph. Now we're going to see shortly that as confusing as that can kind of be to us, it was equally frustrating to both Ephraim and Manasseh who, each of them being powerful tribes in their own right, had no interest in being lumped together. 
as, as one with the common name of Joseph. <clears throat> Verse 11 gives us some controversial information because in some ways it sounds like scribal error or double talk. It says that Manasseh was given cities within the tribal territories of Asher, right here, and Issachar. And you see how they border on Manasseh. Well, on the surface, that's kind of a problem. How could one tribe have cities that were in another tribe's territory? That's like saying Florida has a city in Georgia and another one in South Carolina. Okay. Obviously, there is meaning to this that's not obvious, and there's two primary trains of thought about it. The first is that Asher and Issachar were actually the names of small regions that this was not referring to these tribal territories that were inherited by Asher and Issachar. But I think that's a pretty severe stretch. Okay. There is no evidence in history that two such small regions ever existed. Okay. It's strictly speculation trying to find a solution for the problem. Much more likely is that it means just what it says. That inside the original territories of Asher and Issachar, Manasseh held some cities. Now, we need to understand something at this point. <clears throat> the divvying up of that territory of Canaan among the Israelites was anything but clean and neat. Okay. Further, it was a long and protracted process. Because the Bible moves along at a very rapid pace where reading from one paragraph to the next can be a decade or more, and turning a page or going to the next chapter can be scores of years, only, often only the barest of facts are given to us, and, or the final outcomes are recorded in some very short form. Okay. The reality is that the tribal boundaries constantly changed. They were constantly disputed. Some tribes didn't much like the land they received and so easily gave it up, tried to acquire some other land. Some tribes got up and just moved entirely. And in other cases, boundaries expanded or contracted for various reasons. And this went on for hundreds of years and the details aren't necessarily all recorded. Again, think of Iraq. We can look at a map, see a simple outline of the country overall, and then say from a wider perspective, well, we conquered that. Yet from a battlefield perspective, within that single map outline of Iraq, there are cities and areas that the USA central Iraqi government controls and cities and areas where they just don't. Okay. So from an overall perspective, an Israelite tribe was given a territory with rough boundaries um, that essentially outlined that territory in general. But inside that outline, there were cities they didn't control. Cities they didn't occupy. On the other hand, there were cities they did live in. Cities over which the... And then in other, ones, other cases, cities that the enemy had firm control and they weren't about to easily give it up. For whatever reason... 
Manesha seems to have taken control of some cities that were located in an area that would eventually be allotted to Asher and Issachar. Take note now, remember what we just read, it was some time after Manesha had taken its inheritance before Asher and Issachar took theirs. So even though in time... Asher and Issachar would have defined territories for their own. There would be cities within those territories that Manesha had years earlier conquered. And they had no interest in turning it over to the other tribes, even though technically those cities were within another tribe's boundaries. And thus Manesha continued to control cities within the boundaries of a territory that technically hadn't been assigned to them. Well, beginning in verse 14, we get a small taste of the countless and never-ending kinds of disputes that arose among the tribes of Israel over land allocation. And the gist of it is this. Ephraim and Manasseh were unhappy with the amount of land they had received and they wanted more. Note again this reference it makes here to the descendants of Yosef, Joseph, doing the complaining. And of course, this was referring to the two tribes, two Joseph tribes as they're called, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, even though most Bibles will show that the last half of verse 15 is in quotes, meaning in English grammar that we're supposed to be reading the exact words of some individual. Okay? In fact, this is just Hebrew storytelling. The idea is that the leaders of Ephraim and Manasseh, or as some rabbis say, that this was a complaint coming only from Ephraim, they lodged a complaint with Joshua that effectively communicated dissatisfaction with the land allotment process. And there's almost some downright arrogance in the tone of, of all this, since they were Joseph's sons, they seem to think they deserve very special treatment. Joshua was just plain too experienced and tough to just accept such nonsense from the Joseph tribes. And so he suggested that since they think of themselves as so great and mighty, then they ought to just go up into the forested hill country and use some of their vast labor force to clear the trees. Make fields. Yeah. Take more land if they wanted it from the Canaanites particularly the enemies of the Perizzites and the Rephaim. Besides, that's what they were supposed to do in the first place. In other words, Joshua says, Ephraim and Manasseh should make the equivalent of another allotment for themselves by their own labors. But don't come here asking Joshua to take some already won territory away from some other tribes and then give it to them as an extra gift. So the two Joseph tribes back down a bit and they whine that even if they cleared the hills of, the, of all the trees, that unless they got additional land, it just wasn't enough for them. And not only that, but the Canaanites, you see, live in the valley areas of the land they currently have allotted to them, and they're just too powerful to be rooted out. Why? Because these Canaanites have so-called iron chariots. Well, to be blunt about it, the Joshua tribes really weren't telling the truth. Truth taken together, they, Ephraim and Manasseh, amounted to fewer than about 58,000 men of military age. 
Now, although the last census taken indicated that Ephraim was about 32,500 and Manasseh was 52,700 all by itself, at least half of Manasseh's number had been given land to the east side of the Jordan. So the other half of Manasseh, and that's who's being dealt with in these verses, plus the entire tribe of Ephraim, together made them smaller than Judah. In fact, it made them smaller than Dan at this time. The territory given to the sons of Joseph was really quite large. At least as large as Judah's and would considerably larger than Dan's. Further, the Jezreel Valley is some of the most fertile anywhere in the Middle East. It's a huge area with nutrient-rich black soil several feet deep. Truly, the area is so amazing in its fertility that if Ephraim and Manasseh took it, they could have fed all 12 tribes from its crops. But as you can also imagine, the Canaanites who lived there weren't particularly interested in giving it up for the same reasons. Generally, the request of Ephraim and Manasseh was hollow and self-serving without any real merit. It's just indicative of ongoing efforts by the tribes to constantly increase their influence and prestige while putting themselves out to the least possible trouble. Joshua didn't budge. In the last few verses of chapter 17, he reiterates that since they see themselves as so powerful and mighty that all they need to do is clear the hill country and there will be plenty of open land for farming. And since they're so numerous and confident in their own greatness, it shouldn't be beyond them to defeat those Canaanites with their iron chariots, set and match to Joshua. Now, before we move on to Joshua 18, let me talk for just a moment about these iron chariots. First, these were not chariots made entirely of iron. They were mostly wood that was just tipped with, with iron in strategic spots for strengthening. But it did make them more durable and not so easy to destroy as their all, wood, all wooden counterparts. But second, there was a disadvantage to the addition of the iron. They got significantly heavier. That extra weight meant that the terrain on which they could operate was very limited. The extra weight meant that going across mud was near to impossible. So we find chariots in general and iron chariots much more so limited to operating in valleys and in plains. Rocky and hilly geography was a no-go for chariots. So two specific areas that are still known well to this day are mentioned as places where the Canaanites operated their chariots. And therefore, where Ephraim and Manasseh felt they had no chance at victory. Beit Shan and the Jezreel Valley. Now some of you have been with me on tour to the Jezreel Valley and we also spent time at Beit Shan. These are relatively flat areas that would have easily allowed chariots to operate as they were designed. Let's move on to Joshua 18. 
Joshua chapter 18. The entire community of the people of Israel assembled themselves together at Shiloh, Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there after the land had been subdued before them. There still remained among the people of Israel seven tribes that had not yet received their inheritance. Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long are you going to delay going in to take possession of the land which Adonai, the God of your ancestors, has given to you? Appoint three men for each tribe. I'll commission them. And they are to set out, go through the land and describe it according to their inheritance. Then they're to come back to me. They're to divide it into seven portions with Judah remaining in its territory to the south and the house of Joseph in their territory to the north. You will describe seven portions of land and bring the descriptions here to me. Then I will cast lots for you here before Adonai our God. But the Levites have no share with you because the office of priest to Adonai is their inheritance. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have already received their inheritance beyond the Jordan to the east, which Moses, the servant of God, gave them. So the men got up and went. Joshua gave them this commission as they left to describe the land. Go, walk through the land, describe it, then come back to me and I'll cast lots for you here before Adonai in Shiloh. The men went and passed through the land, surveying its five cities, dividing it into seven regions, and writing the results on a scroll. Then they came to Yahshua in the camp of Shiloh. Yahshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before Adonai, and there Joshua divided the land among the people of Israel according to their regions. We'll stop there. Up to this point... The center of operations for Joshua and um, the Israelites was a place called Gilgal. This is where they've been located. Gilgal, by the way, was eventually going to be in Benjamin's territory. There, the wilderness tabernacle had been erected. There, at Gilgal, the priests dwelled and officiated over the sacrificial rituals and serviced the sacred tent. There, at Gilgal, was the Ark of the Covenant, presumably with the Shekinah glory accompanying it. But now, for reasons that are not given, Shiloh, we say Shiloh, became the new sacral headquarters and thus the seat of government for Israel. Now, it's hard to know how much time passed between the end of chapter 17, the allotment of land to the Joseph tribes, and then the beginning of chapter 18, probably a few years. Okay. Apparently, at least some of Joshua's army remained intact. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Judah had some successes against pockets of Canaanites that hung on to cities within their territories. And so the land, I guess, was under sufficient control to move the tent of meeting to another place that was more central and convenient, supposedly, to the twelve tribes of Israel. But notice something. Shiloh was located in Ephraim's territory. No doubt, the Joseph tribes lobbied pretty hard to have the religious power center of Israel in their family's territory. For although the site was central, as you see it on a map, in fact, there was a lot of better and easier locations down in the Shephelah or even up in the low foothills. See, because 
Shiloh is hill country. It's beautiful, but it's rocky and craggy, and it's not so easily accessible. Today, it's in what the enemies of Israel term the West Bank. Okay. In biblical terms, it's in Samaria. Okay. The very area the tent was erected is visible to this day. Okay. The evidence of its presence is obvious. Even the holes bored in the rock where the posts of the courtyard, the tabernacle courtyard perimeter curtain were set into can be found. Okay. Several of you have been with me to that spot. And it's quite breathtaking to know that we were standing where the Ark of the Covenant once was. Okay. But all was not going well. As verse 2 explains without editorializing, seven of the twelve tribes had yet to receive their inheritance of land. Then an exasperated and aging Joshua lays out the challenge to these tribes. He says, how long are you going to resist doing what God's instructed you to do? In other words, Joshua had been trying to get these seven tribes to accept their allotted inheritance and then go and subdue it, but they didn't want to. Now, we've discussed in prior lessons and today that the current generation of Israelites were more like Bedouins. They had no interest in trying to make land produce or in fighting over territory. Rather, they would just wander around with their flocks and herds from place to place seeking fresh pasture land and good water living in their tents and would do everything possible to avoid conflict. Commitment was not in their vocabulary. Okay. Boundaries were to be crossed, not enforced. Okay. Permanently settling wasn't their goal and it sure didn't fit the lifestyle they had learned during their 40 years out in the wilderness. But Joshua wasn't going to give up. The time was right, and so he ordered that each of the seven remaining landless tribes appoint three men who would go out and map the territory allotted to them, then come back and report to him. Thereafter, adjustments would be made to each tribe's location and size, and Joshua would die knowing he had finished the work God had assigned to him to install the people of Israel, into their promised land and to divide it among them. We'll continue with chapter 18 next.